Hi, friends, and welcome to another episode of the End of Sport podcast. My name is Nathan Coleman Lamb, and I'm going solo today,、uh, but not really, because I have the incredible pleasure of being joined by Ashish Kapoor Sadiq and Joe Darda, two incredibly thoughtful and insightful critics of higher education in the United States. And together, we have a conversation really about. The kind of question of crisis in scare quotes in higher ed, and also the relations between those forms of crisis、uh, and sport, which is of course a, a perpetual topic for us on this show. So I'm really not going to say much more in terms of preamble because it's a very long conversation, and I think it speaks for itself. But I do want to just say.、Um, We are back to our in,、uh, our regular recording schedule. We are releasing end of sport podcasts weekly,、um, and I know that many of you may have fallen out of the habit of listening to the show because we haven't been giving you a show to listen to. But now, because we are back in earnest,、uh, I want you to get back in that habit, and that means probably that the best possible thing you can do is to subscribe to the show. So you don't need to get any kind of notification about it. You don't need to find out on social media.、Uh, you just get it. Immediately on your listening device,、um, and, and you can follow along with us as we get regular again. But、uh, if you do want to follow on social media, we appreciate that too. We are still on the stupid, terrible Elon Musk website.、Um, we are also on Blue Sky. We're trying to build that Blue Sky account. So please, if you've gone over to Blue Sky, I encourage you to do so.、Uh, if you haven't been able to do so because you need an invite code, you can you can hit us up for one of those because I think there's a lot of invite codes floating around.、Uh, and please follow the account over there because we're trying to use that as much as possible.、Um, and with that said, enjoy the show. Ashish Kapoor Sadiq is assistant professor of history at UMass Amherst, where he studies the British Empire between the 17th and early 19th centuries. He is the author of the manuscript *The Experience of the Archive: Knowledge and the Making of the Early Modern British Empire*, currently under contract with the Yale University Press. Alongside his scholarly work, Ashish is also one of the foremost critics we have of higher education today, particularly in the humanities. And his public-facing work has appeared in outlets such as the Daily Beast, Inside Higher Ed, and Teen Vogue, among others. Ashish, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's so great to be here, Nathan. Joe Darda is associate professor of English at Michigan State University, where he studies post-1945 American literature, culture, and politics. He is the author of three books, amazingly closely released. I can't even. I, I'm honestly sorry for this. I just can't even believe how prolific、uh, Joe is. He is the author of three books on the reconfiguration of race in the age of civil rights, the strange career of racial liberalism, with Stanford University Press, 2022, how white men won the culture wars, a history of veteran America, with the University of California Press, 2021. And Empire of Defense: Race and the Cultural Politics of Permanent War, with the University of Chicago Press, 2019. With the historian Amira Rose Davis, he also co-edited a 2023 special issue of American Quarterly titled "The Body Issue: Sports and the Politics of Embodiment." Joe, welcome to the show. 
Thanks, Nathan. And I should say those were all written with uh, ChatGPT's assistance, so don't be too <laughs> Don't say that or you might get fired. Um, <laughs> so this episode uh, is going to be a conversation about higher education and sport, you know, a subject that we are always thinking about, usually through the prism of college sports. But we have had Ashish on in the past to kind of to dig into higher ed and its political economy more broadly. And then today is, in a way, going to be an extension of both of those themes, I would say. We're going to talk about the confluence of sport in U.S. higher ed, especially. Um, but we're also going to talk about some of the big issues that are uh, plaguing, I would say, higher education today. Uh, to begin with, though, I want to start with maybe a subject that, that links the two subjects, that is sport and higher education, because I had the pleasure of listening to a really a remarkable presentation that Joe delivered at the American Studies Association annual meeting in Montreal this past November. And I, by the way, want to give a shout out here to the American Studies Association Sports Studies Caucus and the exceptional work being done there. This was really one of the most stimulating conferences I've attended. And I think that anyone who listens to our show and works on and is interested in um, sport and the critical sports studies, the ASA Sports Studies Caucus is really where some of the, I think, most important work is happening. So I would strongly encourage you all to check that out in the future. Now, um, Joe, in his presentation, you made some fascinating connections between the exploitation that occurs in college sport and the broader trends toward adjunctification, exploitation, and precarity in the academy more broadly. What was particularly fascinating about your analysis was, in fact, the suggestion that higher education itself is learning from the exploitation that occurs in college sports. Would you mind just elaborating on and explaining this argument for our listeners? And I'd love to hear what Ashish might have to say in response. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I appreciate the acknowledgement of the Sports Studies Caucus, which I agree is doing uh, great work and i um, excited for, uh, for the sessions uh, already in, in Baltimore in the fall. Um, yeah, the, the presentation that I gave at ASA, um, which was uh, which I titled uh, "Let the Meet Passion," um, is really looking at, as you suggest, uh, the way that college athletics actually um, leads the way in uh, labor on college campuses, rather than being this kind of, I think, as we often think of it, as this this appendage to uh, to the university or to the college. Um, and I begin with a story that some may remember from the spring of 2022 when uh, UCLA. Uh, posted uh, a job opening in the Department of Chemistry and Biochemistry for uh, an assistant adjunct professor. And it was, for the most part, your typical job posting. Um, the expectation was that uh, the successful applicant would have a PhD in chemistry or biochemistry, extensive teaching experience, and you had to submit you know, all the regular things, the CV, uh, cover letter, uh, teaching statement, research statement, three to five letters of rec, and a DEI statement. Uh, the one catch with the job posting was that uh, it emphasized that the successful candidate would be serving on what they described as a without salary basis, i.e. you would not be paid for this uh, for this work. Um, and academic Twitter picked up on this. It became uh, it became a big news story, at least in places like the Chronicle of Higher Education. And initially, UCLA tried to defend the position. They sent out uh this director of media relations, who's an expert in crisis management, to defend the position. And what he suggested basically was that, uh, yes, you're not getting paid, but you can profit from you know, your association with UCLA, this prestigious university, and you can also do something that would be benefiting society. You're, you're teaching. You're doing something that, um, that has this you know, non-monetary value. Um, and although UCLA would eventually back off uh, from this job offer, they would take it down and apologize. 
I think it was really interesting how this crisis management officer defended the the offering of a position that would be entirely unpaid. Um, and at the very same time at UCLA, you had two other things happening that were very rarely connected in um, in either local or, or mainstream national media. And that was uh, the realignment of the major conferences. UCLA, along with USC, was in the process of uh, leaving uh, its historic home, the Pac-12, for the Big Ten. Um, and you also were in the first year of NIL deals. Um, so you're seeing some athletes getting you know, a, a form of compensation, though not directly from the universities for the first time. And I think it's worth thinking about these two things together, as I suggested in this ASA paper, uh, because what the way in which the UCLA um, new, uh, director of media relations was defending this uncompensated position was something that's very familiar if you are someone who follows college athletics, especially the politics and the economics of college athletics, in that the successful applicant for this position in, in chemistry um, would have not been compensated directly by the university, but the university would have been providing them a platform from which they could be they could find other ways, some monetary and some non-monetary, to uh, profit off of their labor. You could um, do something that felt like it was a form of a passion project for you. You're doing something that benefits society, so you're being compensated in this non-monetary way. But perhaps you could also you know, use the currency of the UCLA Association to make money elsewhere. And that's exactly the logic of name image likeness deals, where UCLA is not paying its, say, football or basketball or gymnasts uh, directly, but it is suggesting that we UCLA are going to provide you with a platform and you can go sell your wares on social media or somewhere else. And we're helping to facilitate that. So we can sort of take some credit for that. Um, and I trace back a longer history to this, the way in which since 1956, with the introduction of the term student athlete, which I know uh, Nathan, you and your co-hosts have discussed on this podcast many times before, um, that higher education has often been led by athletics and not the other way around. And then we can talk about that in greater detail, but I think the hook was the thing that really captured people was the connection between NIL um, and that UCLA position uh, that, that uh, involved no pay whatsoever. Ashish, what do you make of that? Well, I, um, you know, I, I think that, uh, uh, I mean, I completely agree, uh, with Joe and I, I think actually that the, that the suggestion, um, that, uh, you know, that college athletics has, um, uh, really kind of led the way in labor exploitation is, is, is I think, uh, 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 probably, uh, in many ways kind of right on the money. I think, you know, one of the, uh, sort of to go back to um, uh, 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 sort of the UCLA um, uh, 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 job ad um, was uh, that the um, the the person who was supposed to kind of fill this this uh, 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 job was also supposed to be um, uh, uh, teaching. And uh, the the idea, in some ways, I mean, the, the suggestion, in some ways, is that there are certain kinds of labor within the university that are being um, devalued, and I think that the devaluation of, uh, in particular, uh, things like uh, uh, teaching and 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 um, uh, athletics. Where which are paradoxically the the 
uh, or maybe not paradoxically, the the very places where most universities make uh, 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 enormous amounts of revenue. I mean, in most of the uh, uh, money that an institution like UMass makes um, uh, is uh, beyond, you know, state appropriations is coming from teaching. Um, I think says a lot about how these institutions have come to, uh, you know, have come to operate, which is that uh, they they are, you know, premised on this predatory model of devaluing the very thing that allows them to, uh, you know, to continue to function. Yeah, no, that's a great point, and and what it brings us to here, really, and I, I wish I wish I didn't I wish I didn't have to say this, and also it feels like if we had conducted this episode almost like any week in the last five years, I might lead with the same kind of line I'm about to deliver, but yet, nonetheless, it feels more acute right now. You know, this is a moment of crisis in higher yes. education, right? Um, it's, a, this, uh, it's always crisis. It's not the crisis is the norm, but I mean, it, like, really, it, it feels acute because, um, and just, to, there's so much, there's too much to get into, but I mean, the the, the thing that I was going to start with, um, and, I, and I do think we need to talk about it because it is a kind of paradigmatic case case is that really the destruction last year of West Virginia University, right? Uh, a flagship state public institution with a really important mandate to serve the students of West Virginia. And, and I get that because I, I now teach, you know, I was at Duke for six years and Duke was a very different mandate, very different project, different in every way. But now I'm at the University of New Brunswick in Canada. So it's a d- right. different kind of political economic environment. But the University of New Brunswick's project is absolutely to support the young people, the students of New Brunswick. That's who the vast majority of our students are. And if you took away this institution, you know, there would not be higher education for most students in New Brunswick. And I think that's exactly the situation in West Virginia as well. And so um, it's really like, it's a tragedy for the entire state, right? When that institution is destroyed. On top of that, we now see that, and and I don't wanna miss an institution. So please, for listeners out there, Honestly, there's too many of these, and that's that's the problem. But I know that at UNC Greensboro, we've seen similar developments. We've seen them at the University of Arizona recently. And the most recent one that's on the top of my mind um, is University of Connecticut. And at Connecticut, we found out that due to a 70-plus million dollar budget deficit, every unit is supposed to uh, reduce its budget by 15%. Um, so I don't know, for either of you, maybe you can start us on this one, but can you maybe speak a little bit more directly to what happened at West Virginia, just because that's a case we've had a lot of time to think about, um, yes. and maybe like, you know, what that represents in terms of broader trends in higher ed. Yes. Um, so uh, West Virginia University, so which is the state's um, sort of flagship uh, um, university, the main, uh, the main public university in the state, the, the, the largest one in terms of both its budget and also in terms of uh, uh, the, the size of its staff and the size of uh, its faculty and the size of uh, the number of students it enrolls, um, uh, uh, proposed to eliminate um, uh, a, a huge number of um, its majors. Um, all of its foreign language programs and uh, a, a, a substantial number of its uh, faculty members because of a, uh, a $45 million uh, projected budget deficit um, uh, for 2024. Um, and the, 
the reason that it was doing this is because it uh, uh, um, decided to uh, essentially um, uh, uh, pursue a project of um, uh, uh, massive kind of um, uh, 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 expansion of um, the campus uh, and uh, an expansion of um, administrative staff uh, uh, on the um, advice of a, a consulting firm called RPK, which has been uh, instrumental in leading the way for administrators to cut academic programs across the country, um, uh, most notably at, at New Jersey City University. And um, the the person who was kind of managing this was the was is the president of uh, West Virginia, a, a man named Gordon Gee, who refuses uh, and and sort of insisted that um, uh, administrative uh, spending should not be cut, uh, but that uh, the 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 cuts to um, uh, uh, the university should come on the um, on the academic side. And uh, this is perhaps um, uh, a particularly interesting claim from Guy because he has been president of a number of other universities where he has used his position to spend excessively university money essentially on himself. So when he was the president at um, Ohio State, um, not only did he make an $8.6 million salary, uh, he also um, his expense report reveals that he's that the university spent just seven point seven million dollars on his various expenses, like private plane rides, um, you know, lunches and dinners with with various people. Um, he also had been the president at Brown and he got the university to spend three million dollars just renovating his home. Uh, he was the chancellor at Vanderbilt. And then he also got Vanderbilt to spend six million dollars renovating uh, uh, the the mansion where uh, they allowed him to live for essentially free. Um, and so, you know, this is a guy who basically has had a career of um, living large off off um, off universities um, and uh, uh, having the the burden and the and the um, and the consequences of that fall on uh faculty students uh and staff and and who and, and Ashish, let um, me just jump in just for a super quick second i just gotta tell you because that's that that ohio state salary you said he made an 8.6 million dollar annual salary at ohio state yes. urban meyer the football coach at ohio state at around that time was making 7.6 million I mean, at exactly. least Urban Meyer was bringing in revenue for the university. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I exactly. can't believe that Gordon Gee was earning a higher salary. Yes, I mean it's, it. I mean it. It's it's astonishing when you, uh, when you think about it. Um, and you know the the result is that uh, I mean I think Gee basically said, um, and this kind of maybe connects also to the AI portion, or at least the 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 technology portion, he, he said when, when he was challenged on this idea that, well, you're just going to cut all the language from us, he said, well, people can, students, if they want to learn a language, can just use Duolingo, which is, a, you know, which is, a, which is an app, basically, that you can download on your phone. <laughs> and so there was this, I mean, I kind of a perfect microcosm of how administrators are 
devaluing um, uh, the labor of the humans that um, uh, that actually make universities uh, run, and are kind of pulling out uh, tech um, as sort of a, a, a way to kind of quite literally, I mean, just replace people. And um, uh, even when that tech simply cannot, of course, give uh, uh, the same quality, not even nearly the same quality of, of, of instruction, I, mean, I don't think it's comparable uh, to say, oh, you're just going to use Duolingo when, you know, you actually have somebody teaching you Chinese or Spanish um, uh, five, you know, five days a week in the classroom. Um, so I think it, it, it's almost like the, I mean, the, the West Virginia situation, I think, is almost a perfect encapsulation of what is wrong right now with the university state, which is you have these administrators who are predatory and uh, interested in turning what are nonprofit institutions into essentially for-profit ones uh, through devaluing uh, faculty uh, 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 and staff labor and, and as well as student labor uh, and the student experience. And Ashish, uh, I think that the division that you're pointing out between administration and uh, the academic side is really interesting because I think uh, it raises the question, and this takes us back to sports, of what do we consider work and what do we consider yes. labor? And I think that uh, Guy uh, was pretty effective in making the argument that the real workers, the people doing labor, were administrators and uh, the faculty are pursuing something that uh, is a passion for them that serves the greater good um, and for that reason doesn't need to be compensated or doesn't need to be compensated as well. And I think that uh, that echoes a lot of what you see um, in the present, but also historically in, in sports, that uh, a coach is an employee, an athlete yes. is a student at play and does not need compensation because right. they're choosing to do this. It's for fun. It's for recreation. Um, and, uh, and I think that that, that to me is, is, uh, is re really revealing. And I think another aspect of the West Virginia case, um, tells us something about uh, the, the, the relation between the academic and the athletic. And that is Guy's very effective use of, uh, the concept of crisis. Um, yeah. he, and, uh, his provost both, uh, constantly referred to the budget crunch as a, an existential crisis, uh, for yeah. West Virginia university. And, um, you know, I think we all use that term crisis sort of all the time, as you mentioned at the top, Nathan, it's, it's a term that we sort of, it's almost useless because we, we, we sort of have this feeling that we're always in a state of crisis. But one thing that I think that athletics has, has long been very good at, and the NCAA in particular was very good at. Um, is using the concept of crisis to concentrate power um, at the top. And I think that the university has really learned from its athletic department um, the value of a good crisis. The NCAA, you know, originally formed uh, as a result of a crisis, a quote unquote, uh, around on-field violence in football. Uh, of course, this is when uh, famously, uh, Teddy Roosevelt got involved and, uh, with the formation of the, the precursor to the NCAA and, uh, the introduction, the re the reformation of, um, uh, and you know, the, the increased power of the NCAA in the 1950s following, uh, a point shaving scandal at the university of Kentucky and in the CUNY system, uh, led to the concentration of power with, to the, with what led to the NCAA's accrual of greater power. And so the NCAA has really always understood that like, 
it's it's most valuable asset is crisis. Don't let a good yeah. crisis go to waste. And I think that um, university administrators have, I think, looked at their athletic departments for how to to take a crisis and make the case that we need to hire more administrators, more crisis management personnel, um, and really uh, chop down the academic side. Um, in in the course of trying to curb that crisis, which is always assumed to radiate from the academic side and never from the administrative administrative side. Yes. Oh, that's that, that's such a that's a great point. And honestly, um, you know, I'm thinking like Naomi Klein shock doctrine, right? Like this is like the 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 way of managing higher education. But I, I experienced that personally at Duke during the pandemic. Um, so just as, as a little sidebar here, you know, I was in the Thompson writing program, and we were providing first year writing. And by the way, like we can come back to when we get to the AI slash academic labor conversation uh, in Arizona State and the seeming specter of them trying to replace uh, first year writing instruction with Chat G. PT or something like that. Um, but, you know, I think that those who do first year writing to teach first year writing at um, U.S. universities are actually some of the most important instructors on campus yes. because we all know, right, this is the constant complaint of faculty everywhere. My students can't write. Yes. Right. And actually, like a, the great thing, both, again, none of us right now are working at a private school. But in that brief experience I had at Duke, you know, what I saw in a resource rich environment was, look, one of the best allocations of those resources that a university can 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 make to actually enrich the pedagogy that goes on the the, the putative yes. project maybe only the putative project of the institution um, is to, do, to to invest in first year writing and we had classes that had a class size of only twelve at Duke right and each of these classes was taught by someone who had a particular area of expertise so I would teach on the labor of sport social inequality in sport students had to take first year writing but they could take disease ecology they could take disability in Irish literature they could take labor of sport right they choose the thing that was interesting and it was a right intensive class, only 12 people in the class, they would get a tremendous amount of feedback because I had the time to read their work really carefully, right? It, actually, it was a great pedagogical model, right? I, I, right. Two thumbs up to Duke on, on, on that model. And indeed, we you know, were one of the higher ranked programs in the country and all that stuff. But during the pandemic, Duke made the claim that because they were in financial, you guessed it, crisis, yeah. right? <laughs> because of that crisis, Unfortunately, they had to raise our class sizes by 25%. Uh, and the difference, you know, I have to tell you, it, it sounds small. For those of us teaching at public school, it still sounds small. But the move from 12 to 15 students in a writing class like that, you're teaching many sections of that class. It's a lot more students to look at, which means you're doing a worse job of pro feedback provision on student writing, right? So right. they're increasing class sizes by 25% unilaterally overnight. Of course, wages don't rise commensurately. They don't rise at all, right? Because the claim is that now we got to do more with less, which is, of course, the principle that's applying to all these institutions. But the reason I'm bringing this up right now, Duke's endowment increased by 56% during oh this God. period of time. Okay, their endowment increased by 56%, but they claimed to be in crisis. And that's why they increased our class sizes. So that's why I, I wanted to really tease out that point you were making, Joe, about, about kind of the rhetoric of crisis and how it's instrumental to the management of these institutions, because it's truly, it's about rhetoric. It's a frame, right? It's a device, mm -hmm. but it doesn't yeah. actually, like, I think that there's, like, you, the three of us agree that there is a crisis precisely because of how our institutions are being managed and the cuts that are coming. But the claims of crisis coming from administrators, I think are a very different question. And we can keep pulling on that string because I think that's that's really the, the, the kind of political economic underpinnings are an important part of this. But, but what you've gestured to, you both talked about 
the role of consulting firms. And I do think we should get into that because that maybe is a new ingredient, or at least yes. maybe it's not new, but it, like I think for a lot of faculty, it feels new. Like it's not something that we've really been contending with or thinking through enough. So we know about RPK Group being involved in West Virginia, and we know that the, these firms are experts in restructuring higher education. And I was frankly, I was horrified to learn this week. You know, I, I've been living with this false, maybe false sense of security. I'm in Canada now. Like, I'm really sorry to both of you, but the truth is that Canadian academics have better jobs than you have. Yes. Um, we have really <laughs> no good doubt. collective agreements where we have better working conditions and fair compensation. And like, it really speaks to the power of strong unions that we have, right? Like, good jobs. And yet at Queen's University, which is one of Canada's most prestigious institutions, okay, like it's absolutely a prestigious institution. It's not a large factory. It's almost more like a liberal arts college, but it's, a, it's like an R1. It's like a Duke, you know, but it's a public institution. And at Queen's, they too have apparently retained one of these consulting firms. Um, and right. the idea that that's happening, it's like, it is everywhere. It's happening in Australia, I gather. It's happening in New Zealand. It's happening in the U.S. What do we do with these consulting firms? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that, it, this is something where I think one of my favorite analyses of this, uh, you know, not exactly the consulting firm, but of this this move toward, um, you know, kind of the outsourcing of uh, the university's activities to various private entities is Christopher Newfield's book. I don't know if the two of you are familiar yes. from 2016 called The Big Mistake. Yes. Um, and he describes what he calls the devolutionary cycle, uh, which I think is, is pretty clever. He, he basically observes that what universities have done really since the, the 1970s, 1980s, um, is to, to constantly outsource their various activities in an attempt to, um, in an attempt to shore up uh, strained budgets. And that what those outsourcing activities always end up doing is that they end up saving a little bit of money in the short term, but then ultimately increasing costs within a couple of years. And and that their solution then to those increased costs that are caused by the privatization of that part of the university is to hire even further uh, private firms to uh, to take on other activities of the university. And that you get this, you know, this constant sort of escalation, this devolution of of the university as as Newfield describes it. And and it seems to me that the consulting firm um, is really in a, is a further extension of of that, and uh, and of course we know that consulting firms, you know, one thing that they're not good at, even though they're they're good maybe at making it seem like they're they're taking account of the local environment, is that it's really a drag and drop formula. Uh, you know, these consulting firms are going around and they're applying the same um, the same formula to universities around the world, and you know. Uh, you know, God save the rest of the world because, uh, you know, most of them are based in the United States, which means that it's a way also a way of outsourcing the U.S. model of privatized higher education. So uh, so my apologies, Nathan, to to your, to your institution that. and the rest and that. all other Canadian institutions <laughs> that are, uh, you know, receiving these U.S. based consulting firms. Um, but, you know, I, I do think that one one thing that that I think that does present is that it, it hopefully allows for us to under have a kind of a there, there's a need for a kind of unified front because when we're all faced with the same consulting firm, you know, you can look to institutions that had 
that consulting firm, you know, roll into town two years earlier, and you can go to them and say, you know, what what can we expect, and how can we maybe fight, uh, you know, what this consulting firm is is going to be doing. And so, if there's any silver lining in the consulting firm movement, it's my hope that at least it might create kind of a solidarity across institutions because people are going to be facing very similar proposals from often identical consulting firms. Ashish, do you want to follow up on that? Yeah, I, I do. I, I, I want to jump in and, and, and just sort of add and um, that, you know, one of the things that these consulting firms uh, do is that they, they come in and, and often they um, sort of don't in some ways provide, they're there to provide art, to provide data to support arguments that administrators want to already make um that's that sort of their function is to provide a kind of analytical cover for um kind of ideology driven cuts from um uh, uh, uh from administrators so um you know an example of this is actually something that happened um uh at uh in 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 North Carolina um at the end of uh, uh, at the end of last year, which is that the the University of North Carolina system um, uh, paid um, uh, uh, two consulting firms, Deloitte uh, and the RPK Group, which was also involved in um, in sort of the the cuts at um, the University of Virginia, um, to basically uh, do a study uh, where they paid them um, uh, a large amount of money. Uh, to figure out the um, the long term uh, 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 earnings of UNC graduates uh, who had various um, uh, uh, kinds of uh, who had gotten various kinds of degrees, um, and you know, I mean, in in some ways, un- unexpectedly, I'm mean, not unexpectedly, uh, you know, they found that um, you know that that students who had majored in STEM fields, um, you know, science, technology, engineering, and math. Uh, made more money than students who had made, uh, you know, who had majored in in other in other fields, including the humanities. Um, and uh, the 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 fear is that um, first of all, this didn't exactly tell people things that um, uh, that um, uh, uh, they didn't already know. But the the use of this. Um, uh, in the words of the of the administrators of the UNC system, um, uh, was to say that we're going to use this data um, to basically eliminate programs that, in the words of administrators, uh, you know, provide a lower return on investment. And so, they the these these um, these groups, which is exactly what. Um, RPK did when they did this similar kind of study for West Virginia University are are there in many ways to provide cover for um, administrators who want to treat um, uh, uh, universities like a business and get rid of parts that are unprofitable and augment parts that are uh, that where they can make more money. Um, but I mean, a university is not you know, is not a for-profit corporation. That's not what um, we do. And we don't, we, we don't measure the value of, of 
um, uh, the things that we do based on uh, the amount of money that people make at the end of it. That's just like the one place in society where uh, we get to not have to do that. Um, and so I, I, I fear that, um, uh, you know, these consulting firms are, 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 are a lucrative business. I mean, it, it can sometimes be hard to figure out exactly who's working with who, but um, as I said, uh, I think before, I mean, the fact that, um, you know, um, uh, in, uh, you know, big uh, uh, general consulting firms like McKinsey and Bain actually have dedicated divisions for deal for, for higher education clients, you know, means this is a very, very lucrative business for these um, firms that um, are predatory and that um, are enabling uh, many of the cuts to, um, you know, to to learning and to students that, um, you know, we're seeing across the country. Yeah, that's that's definitely clarifying. And I think what we're getting at here, what you're what you're both getting at is, first of all, like the way in which we we have to understand um, these developments to be a kind of product of a, a larger neoliberal project. Right. Yes. Which is no surprise. And and and, you're, and I think, Ashish, you, you explain that in two ways. Right. There's like an ideological component to that, which is to say, like, we need to tr- we need to run it like a business in that sense. Yeah. Um, uh, and and it's just that's just like almost like a philosophy. Right. Like the, the administrative class, that's what they know, that this logic, that's the only logic they know and then there's a practical side which is that we're going to like strip it for parts which is kind of like the neoliberal approach to running business um so i think that's a really helpful way of get of like partly processing the the political economic framework for why this is happening um but maybe there's a a few other things we can to pull out i know we've been talking about this a lot already but I, i think we should say just a little bit more about this question of administrative bloat because this is also a place where we see that we see specifically, or a phenomenon we see in athletics, right? I mean, that's why, like, me and studying college sport, what I always come back to is this is a non-profit industry, right? As you've said, Ashish. Yes. But yet there's all this revenue being produced in the sports sphere because we're producing commodity spectacle that has tremendous value. And so that value flows into the university. And then something has to be, at least at Power 5 schools, we maybe we can get into some of the other complications. Um, and then something has to be done with that money. And what is done with the money is it is essentially funneled into the production of an entire administrative class that exists yeah. in athletic departments that does not otherwise need to exist, except that you need to find a place to put the money. <laughs> um, but, you know, that doesn't really seem to explain to me why we have seen the same kind of administrative bloat on the, I guess, academic side. Like, I don't even want to call it the academic side because they don't really serve an academic function at all, right? There's no way in which I can even correlate them. But, I mean, like, they they, they, they exist within the academic units of the university, perhaps. Why? What is going on there? Well, um, the... Uh, the... the the i so i think there 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 are a couple of things to uh uh to say um you know i uh the the expansion of um uh administrative um uh spending um has kind of been uh a a story of uh especially at public universities um of the uh, decline of uh, taxpayer uh, revenue, so so you know public revenue appropriated by the state to run public universities, and um, the increase in both 
uh, uh, tuition, um, especially at uh, at these public institutions, um, uh, and the um, kind of the expansion of this uh, administrative um, uh, class. And so, right now, you know, the the other element here is that um, uh, students now pay. Uh, much, much more to attend um, uh, uh, universities, especially in, you know, and in, in perhaps most problematically public universities. Um, and uh, they're in a, um, a student debt crisis. I mean, the, the amount of um, student debt uh, 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 country uh, burden in, uh, in the U.S. Is, is in the, you know, is in the trillions now. And so it's almost as if there's been this sort of like creation of this um, sort of parasitic class that is, you know, that sort of takes up the, that leads to the increase in uh, tuition, takes up more of the, um, of the resources that students are, are, are paying to the, um, to the university and, you know, funneling it into uh, um, uh, things that are not about um, instruction, but are about sort of, you know, uh, administration. And the result has been uh, that, uh, you know, the, the, the stu- you know, student debt has reached a kind of um, uh, really apocalyptic level where, you know, students are, are once they graduate, are, are in some cases, you know, debt burdened for, um, for life, debts that are managed uh, in in the U.S. by uh, by private companies, and so private companies, private loan companies, make money by servicing the debt of uh, the debt of students, even if it's um, even if it's it's federal uh, 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 student loans. Jordan, yeah, you, one, you know, yeah, you know what, and one I think additional thing that you see the inter, in speaking to this administrative bloat, and it's it's something that um, you know we see as well in athletics is sort of you know uh, if in doubt fire the manager is kind of the model, and you sort of you see this kind of constant rotation of professional administrators moving from university to university, and especially when that's someone at a provost or a president level. Uh, they want to bring their people with them um, as if they're serving in political office. And uh, because of the protections of uh, faculty employment that are enjoyed by many administrators, what often happens is that you hire a new president, they spend two years at the university, they move on to another job, you know, in the Gordon Gee model. Uh, But then they leave this sort of like skeleton crew of you know, vice provosts and associate deans behind them um, that, uh, that then sort of just accrue over time. Um, and I think that, you know, many of us, you know, know this feeling. It's like we, we it's hard to keep track of our various presidents any longer because they're in and out in 18 months or 24 months and they're on to the next job. And you have this this permanent class of university administrators moving from place to place. And they serve a similar function, I think, in that respect to um, consulting firms, uh, because you get this kind of homogenizing effect of the same kinds of policies being applied uh, across uh, various institutions. And what administrators make their current, the way that administrators advance their careers is that they need to come in and introduce various 
initiatives that they can kind of put their stamp on and put on their CV so that they can get the next job up the up the ladder at a better university or at a higher position. And those are expensive and they very rarely have to do with education. They're usually, you know, building initiatives um, or uh, some kind of fancy new center or hiring a couple of really high profile research scientists who don't teach classes. Um, and uh, and that just continu- continues to sort of suck uh, resources away from uh, away from the classroom um, and and toward these other uh, you know more visible expressions of academic excellence. Uh, but of course, as we've already discussed, uh, those are never the things that are on the chopping blocks when it comes to um, you know trim the budget time. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I just as a sort of sidebar here, so I was at a, a really excellent conference hosted by uh, Duke and UNC in November about college sport, a very small symposium. And actually, uh, Holden Thorpe, who was the former chancellor at the University of North Carolina, um, spoke, was on one of the panels. Um, and it's not, it's not often that I'm actually in, a, in the same environment as these sort of administrative <laughs> figures like that. Um, and... Uh, I, I mean, I was struck by something. He, he's on a bit of a tour to, like, uh, rehabilitate his image. Um, mm. And uh, basically the implication of what he was saying is that we put too much responsibility on president or chancellor-like figures and not enough on boards, you know, board of governors and so yeah. forth. Um, because that, that those are the folks, sort of was his contention, who are really pulling the strings. Do you both agree with that? Like, what, 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 what do we? What should we be thinking about the role of these boards and why? Like, what, what are they there for? And does it have something to do with the hedge fundification of our universities? Yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe I'll chime in here. I mean, the the story about the the boards is a really um, is a really important one because um, these these boards are actually the people who um who appoint and um uh, kind of control the um uh the position of who is kind of the president or the head of the university and and the president or the head of the university is ultimately the the person who um uh who uh, can hire or fire uh administrators and so um uh in some sense the 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 president is um you know is a- enabled and and sort of has to um um and has to uh, uh, um uh, sort of answer to these boards because, because of course the board is the one that um uh that you know controls whether the person is the president or not um you know so how did we uh we get to this um position where uh, these boards um, have so much power. Well, I'm. It's a it's it's a long story, uh, but uh, the, uh, the 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 basics of it are that um, when universities first kind of came about uh, in uh, the West in in the medieval and the early modern period, um, they were run by faculty by the people who taught um, and researched in them. Um, but kind of starting in the, um, in the 17th century, um, especially with the, with, uh, colonialism, um, and certainly in the, in the, uh, English context, this is kind of my, uh, my, my area of, of, uh, sort of scholarly knowledge, 
um, when, uh, uh, when in the kind of the 17th century universities were being established by, um, uh, in, in, in England, um, they were uh, made uh, in ways that departed from this older medieval model of faculty governance. So when um, uh, uh, Harvard College, uh, which was uh, uh, chartered and incorporated um, in, uh, in 1650 by the Massachusetts colonial government, um, the, the college was not incorporated as uh, an institution where the faculty uh, uh, control things, but instead as an institution uh, where a president um, uh, uh, who was not part of the faculty um, would be empowered to, uh, and here I'm just kind of quoting from the uh, from the Harvard Charter of 1650, uh, choose such officers and servants for the college and remove them uh, uh, upon, you know, this the the president's uh, decision. Um, and uh, this model of kind of uh, 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 having boards of trustees and presidents rather than faculty um, um, uh, 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 govern things um, was. Uh, was in some ways a kind of a creation of of colonialism. Um, and we talk about kind of universities and empire and universities and the and the power of empire. But the 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 board of trustee system in many ways kind of comes down to um, kind of the 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 invention of uh, the American university in in an age of empire. And you know, fast forward through a long and and complicated story. Um, but the 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 power of uh, trustees rather than faculty um, uh, uh, has tended to be um, affirmed by um, uh, both kind of courts um, and uh, the um, in the and the way in which uh, these um, these these boards have actually operated. And um, what it means is that um, the the power to sort of um, uh, control how uh, universities um, spend money, especially, is in the hands of people who are not uh, teaching in the classroom, who are not doing the research, but, you know, who are there to um, uh, uh, run things largely like a business. So the other part of it, and again, this is a long, complicated story, but um, most of these boards of trustees uh, tend to be made um, uh, made up not of uh, academics or, or or people who uh, teach, but instead, um, you know, lawyers and uh, and business people whose investment and whose entire kind of mindset is to think about things in uh, in according to a kind of a profit motivated manner rather than an uh, an education. Um, uh, uh, um, uh, uh, motivated man. It, that that is extremely illuminating. Um, so the, the next thing for me, then I, I want to bring the sports piece back in. Um, and 
Lots of times what you'll get, and, and this is like I get a little bit queasy with some of these sort of discursive moves, um, is that we'll, we'll then quickly get faculty kind of pointing the finger at athletics. We'll right. Pointing the finger and saying, oh, look at all the athletic blow. Oh, look at the way in which we're investing all this money in sports, and sports are not really the core project of the university. Why is the football stadium so big when the library is crumbling? Uh, and, and, and in the Power Five context, uh, especially, I am often tempted to push back on that because I think that you know we do actually have separate budgets, and in a lot of ways, what happens yeah. on the athletic side, right, is is funded by the athletic side. And the issue is not, and this is what I want to be I want to be very clear, right, for anyone who has not heard me speak on this, I am not saying, and therefore like give the AD a free pass. I'm saying there is a fundamental problem on the athletic side, but that problem is the athletic, the campus athletic workers who are generating the revenue are not getting the value that they produce. They are being exploited. And the last thing we need to do is subsidize the academic side with the value being stolen from athletes on the athletic side. So that's the thing that I object to. But, um, I mean, I think that we should entertain the question of are there ways in which athletics are compounding some of the problems that we've been noting on the athletics, on the academic side? And, Joe, I, I think maybe the, the example of the University of Connecticut might be helpful in um, elaborating this question. You have some experience with UConn um, in terms of I think you spent some time at graduate school there. Can you speak to how that has come, kind of compounded the problems we're seeing today in UConn? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I went to I attended the University of Connecticut for graduate school from 2010 to 2015, and I spent uh, last academic year 2022-23 on sabbatical there at the Humanities Institute. And, and as you mentioned at the at the top, Nathan, uh, the there was recent news this past week about a huge uh, budget shortfall the university is facing, and uh, and and cuts coming down the pike, cuts expected of every unit on campus. Um, and and I think one important sort of backstory, a bit of backstory to that uh, that budget situation at the University of Connecticut is that when I was at UConn in graduate school was uh, the beginning of the, the ongoing uh, realignment of the major conferences. And the University of Connecticut uh, had historically been in the Big East, uh, and it was hoping uh, to move into uh, the ACC, into a Power Five conference from the Big East. Uh, it's a basketball school, but it was trying to make a push to become a a football school as well, which is really your ticket into one of those Power Five conferences. That's really where the money is made, and uh, and it failed. It ended up landing in kind of the losers conference, which was uh, the athletic, uh, the American Athletic uh, Conference, uh, and uh, and from and from there, it it, it had invested in, in its attempt to get into the ACC all kinds of resources in building new athletic facilities at a huge cost. And uh, you walk around the University of Connecticut today; those still really dwarf the rest of the campus because the University of Connecticut, because it is the flagship state school of a relatively small state with a lot of really prominent uh, private universities in it as well. Yale, uh, the most prominent among them, uh, doesn't have the kind of the student body, uh, you know, the scale, it's not the size of a UMass or a Michigan State University where I am. Um, and, uh, and it's an incredible, the real estate that the athletic facilities take up on that campus. Um, but because they never really got into the big conference with the big television deals, uh, the revenue that was expected never uh, never came. And so the athletic department, as a result, uh, has really been uh, bleeding money. And it ultimately, UConn returned to the, the Big East a couple of years ago. So it was all for naught. You, the, you, UConn just wound up right back where it started. Um, but, uh, but I think that 
you know, uh, football and, and the athletic department more generally is, uh, is a kind of heightened version of what you see around the university, which is uh, you spin big <laughs> to, to hopefully make big. And that, that's especially true in the sciences with grants, with attempts to, to win big grants. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, there's, there's a, a, a lot of risk in that. It's very different than a teaching discipline like English, my own discipline, uh, where the costs uh, you know, the costs are low, but the, uh, and the, the take is low as well. Um, and with football, you're often, you know, spending enormous amounts of money with the hope that you're going to get some, you know, monster television deal, um, with, uh, with ESPN. I mean, this is, as we know, the, the big reason why the PAC 12 has effectively dissolved is its failure to get a big, uh, television deal. That really is, uh, is the thing driving the ship. Um, with uh, in, in Power Five athletics, um, and uh, but Ashish, I don't know if you want to follow up on that. You're you're currently in uh, the Northeast. You're a neighbor to UConn. Yeah, um, I I I would um, you know add that you know one of the um, you know one of the things that we've also uh, that that I mean I think the um, uh, the the UConn story uh, has a lot of parallels to. Um, you know, the, the situation in Massachusetts where, uh, you know, in, in a lot of cases, so both um, uh, Connecticut and Massachusetts have Democratic uh, governors, uh, Democratic state legislators. Um, you know, these are these this is not um, a, a state. These are not states led by Republicans, but they're led by Democrats who have a austerity driven mindset um and who are invested in the idea that um uh, low tax regimes are necessary for um the state to uh you know retain business which is said to be you know the driver of uh economic growth and 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 all good things and so you know in both the case of um uh, Ned Lamont, who's the governor of Connecticut, and um, Mara Healy, who's the governor of uh, Massachusetts, um, governors are pursuing uh, uh, enormous uh, uh, tax cut agenda that are um, in the process um, uh, uh, undermining uh, uh, public revenue for uh, the public university systems. Um, and uh, the result is that um, uh, tuition in um, both of these contexts is is skyrocketing, and uh, we're being asked to do um, more and more uh, uh, with less. Um, it's it's uh, often I think um, uh, we 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 can often I think tend to forget uh, that because of the focus on. Um, uh, uh, you know, legitimately on on um, the 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 terrible kind of destruction of um, higher ed by Republican governors in places like uh, Florida, with um, Ron DeSantis's sort of um, uh, attempt to sort of take down the, uh, the 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 governance structure of Florida's public universities. That um, you know, that so-called blue states. Are are safe havens and refuges for um, uh, for public higher education, but it's it's actually not the case because there is there is very little 
um, uh, uh, political investment, uh, including from Democrats in these states, in the project of um, public uh, education and, and especially public higher education. Um, it's also notable that many of the people who tend to uh, occupy the positions of governors and and uh, uh, powerful positions in the state legislatures and who kind of vote on the budgets for uh, these institutions are often not educated, uh, haven't kind of come through the public higher education system. They've been educated privately um, and they don't have much exposure to uh, you know, to what we do, and they don't seem to value um, uh, uh, these institutions. Um, and in in especially in, we've seen in Connecticut, but but um, I think throughout the country, um, you know, we're seeing uh, just enormous kinds of cutbacks to um, uh, to uh, uh, state support for um, for its for their public institutions. Yeah, and I think like you are absolutely hitting the nail on the head here by emphasizing these questions around public ed public higher education. And, and what's so galling is that discursively, if you were to look at what higher education is represented as in the United States, in the most mainstream venues, which is to say the New York Times, the Atlantic, et cetera, the, the sort of like the taste-making venues of, um, you know, the realm of ideas in, in the United States, the discussion on the other, on the contrary is always about private higher education, yes. right? It is, yes. the story is always the story of what happens at the Ivies. Oh, the Ivies have gone woke, right? Yes. This, this is, like, this is what all the discourse is about. And yes. it's maddening because the reality is that there is there is a story in higher education. It's the story you've both been telling about what is happening at public universities. There isn't really a crisis at private universities for the most part. Um, no. But th that's completely erased by this kind of absurd discourse. I don't know if you have anything to say. Absolutely. Yeah. I do. I, so, you know, in, I, just to give you an example of this, in, in December, um, in, middle, in the middle of December, uh, the state of Oklahoma eliminated all DEI, diversity, um, uh, equity, and inclusion offices in their state's public colleges and universities. And on that day, the New York Times, the headlines uh, were about um, uh, uh, things that were happening at Harvard and Yale, um, including the fact that um, there was uh, there was an entire story in the New York Times on that day about the fact that you know somebody at at, at Yale had had hung uh, a, a Palestinian flag, um, and uh, there was a story on the fact that uh, after these college presidents were testifying before Congress. Um, about anti-Semitism on campus, uh, you know, two of them were fired from Harvard and Penn, but the one from uh, MIT was still there. And so it was this, this sort of absurdity where, you know, there, was an in, there were these enormous stories happening in public higher education around the country, but the media was so focused on what was happening at these few elite, uh, you know, private institutions um, that don't really serve um, uh, basically um, anywhere close to the number of uh, uh, students um, that, uh, that these public in educations, uh, uh, pub public institutions also do. I mean, there's been a major uh, 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 set of 
um, strikes uh, at in the Cal State system um, uh, starting in late 2023. And uh, the New York Times published uh, in, in 2023, they published only one story about uh, 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 the Cal State strike, which, which um, shapes the working and learning conditions of hundreds of thousands of, of people. Uh, meanwhile, they, they published, I don't even know, I mean, God knows how many stories about, you know, about Harvard. Um, and it would, it's, it has, it leads to this thing where, you know, the, the, the New York Times publishes, you know, kind of like a thou thousands of articles on kind of elite academia. Um, for every one article that they publish about kind of the, the actual um, uh, uh, struggles of public institutions and, and, and public universities. And um, that really uh, uh, leads to, I think, a very distorted um, image um, uh, in both the media and in society about, you know, what the university is and what the problems um, on that are. Uh, and you know, these are these are the stories that that really, um, you know, affect uh, uh, millions and millions of people around the country. And they have no they get very little attention from, you know, from from the mainstream media, which is so focused on uh, kind of uh, the the elite, I, I like to call it kind of elite boardroom politics, basically, at, you know, at these at these couple of private universities. Yeah, and the consequences, I think, you know, when you look at something like the the ruling on affirmative action last year, um, you know, it's if you really step back, it's absurd to think that uh, not that I trust the Supreme Court, but uh, if I did trust the Supreme Court, I would say that uh, the schools they should be looking at to, to kind of take the measure of uh, the the effects, the impact of affirmative action and programs like them um, in higher education, you shouldn't be looking at Harvard and, and even UNC, an elite public school, because those are just not right. representative of, uh, of where people are being educated in the United States. I think you look at Harvard and the admissions, I think, I think what, something like 5% of applicants get in at Harvard. You know, I teach at Michigan State University. I think the admission rate is like 85%. Um, and so, you know, you need to be a good student to get into Michigan State, but, you know, you don't need to be doing I don't know what you need to do to get into to Harvard anymore. I mean, besides have a, like a hedge fund manager for a father, right. uh, you know, maybe saving orca whales in the summertime and <laughs> sure. cancer or something. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I find it, I find it very, very frustrating. And, and I think Ashish, your point is right that I, I don't think that um, a lot of major media outlets are doing us any favors. I, I can't, you know, I can, I'm always frustrated whenever I see the op-ed page in the New York times. Cause it's like, you know, David Brooks took the train to Columbia and right. uh, decided he would, you know, meditate on the state of higher education. It's like, right. no, that's that's just not at all representative. Absolutely. Okay. Well, the other thing we really have to get to, um, and because we're talking about crisis here, um, and I don't even know how to honestly to frame this. Whether I want to frame it as a moral panic or like an actual panic, like a deserved panic, um, but definitely we in higher education are panicking um, about. AI. AI has become part of our reality, uh, whether it is Duolingo, as you mentioned earlier. That was a great example of how West Virginia is employing it uh, as, a, as an alternative mode of teaching languages. Um, but certainly the thing that we've been so caught up in is this question around, you know, chat GPT and the idea that 
students may not be doing their own writing. They may be having uh, artificial intelligence write their assignments for them. What this means for especially, you know, I think that it's great that the, the two of you and really I, I view myself, even though I'm in a sociology department, um, but I view myself as a sort of humanities oriented person as well. And I think that this this crisis, all the crises always hit the humanities the hardest. But this is a big issue for us for real in the humanities, because part of what we do is teach critical thinking, writing skills, and not just because they're transferable skills, right? Although that's how we have, we're supposed to frame ourselves. But but actually because we value these things. We think that this is part of what it means to educate a person is to be able to articulate themselves through writing, right? Um, and yeah. so what does it mean now that the very meaning of writing is changing? Um, and so this is a big question, but I guess what I'm asking is, do you think there's legitimate substance to this panic? Is there a role now for artificial intelligence? Um, what does it mean for what we do? Joe, do you, I, I want to hear from both of you, but Joe, do you want, do you want to start on this one? Sure. You know, and this is, I'm, I'm hesitant to comment. That's why I'm pausing, um, you know, because I, I don't know. It may, it may be worthy of alarm, um, but I feel like I've just been fooled so many times um, with uh, the supposed crises uh, along similar lines. It was I guess now a decade ago that we were all panicking about the MOOC, the yeah. massive open online courses that, uh, you know, effectively uh, our universities were just going to record us giving our, our lectures one semester and then fire us and then just keep replaying those <laughs> lectures over and over again. And, and that really just didn't, uh, just didn't happen. That's, um, right, that's, before, that's that, before they realized that the campus experience was while they made their money, right? Which puts right. sport right back at the center of this. Yeah, yeah. Exactly, exactly. And, and I, I don't know. I, 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 I still think that, you know, I teach at a very big university and um, I'm, I'm currently teaching a, a course that uh, has a lot of first and second year students in it. It's, pretty, it's a larger course, but relative to their other courses, it's quite small. Um, and, uh, and, and I don't know, you know, it's, 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 it's uh, for many of these students, it's one of their, you know, few exposures to the humanities and it does still provide them with a kind of, uh, a, a set of interactions with, with me, with a faculty member that I don't think they're getting from other, uh, from other disciplines. And, and I don't know to, to what extent AI is going to disrupt that. I think that much like MOOCs, we're going to, recognize that, um, you know, even if, even if we have to deal with students who are, you know, suddenly write a brilliant paper because they had a AI, AI generate a paper for them. That's, you know, kind of punching above their weight class as a, as a, as a student writer. Um, I don't know. I don't know that we should think of it as a crisis, but, uh, that also just might be the fact that I just feel like I've been fooled before into thinking that, uh, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire. And it turned out it was just, you know, a fog machine. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know. And I think that, you know, one, one thing that I'll, before I, I want to hear what Ashish has to say about this. Um, but one thing that I do think, I do think that I, I, I hope we can learn from, uh, from AI and from, uh, from this moment is that people like us who teach at universities begin to freak out when, uh, there are technologies that come for our jobs, uh, for the quote unquote, I hate this term, but I'm going to use it anyway, knowledge workers. Um, and I do think that if anything, what we should take away from this is that there is there, that we need to collapse the divide that we, the artificial divide between manual labor and knowledge work. Yeah. Um, 
And uh, and because I think that's been a huge obstacle to labor solidarity in the United States um, over the past 50 years. And and I think that this gets us back to uh, to athletics as well. Where we're thinking about uh, athletics as a kind of a devalued form of labor because of its relation to manual labor and to physical labor. Um, and I think that, it, you know, when you have something like AI, not that I am in favor of it, but I do think it needs to be a moment of reckoning for us that they're. Uh, that all of our all of our um, you know, lives and our employment uh, is is made precarious by by uh, you know the advance of technology, and we we can't sort of continue to prop up this this notion that that labor means uh, you know your jobs being uh, you know taken over by robots, um, and, uh, and that those robots are not just cranes and uh, factory technology, but also uh, artificial intelligence in the classroom. Yeah, I I I want to also um uh add to this is that um you know one of the things that I think has um uh been um sort of sort of lost a little bit in the in the discussion about AI and I think also the opposition between um AI and uh the idea that kind of that there's an opposition between sort of AI and humans is that there's actually a a hidden history of the fact that and this goes back to a um a really great uh story in New York magazine that came out over the summer um that actually um AI works um only really by uh, uh thanks to the labor of thousands and not even thousands but millions of humans who work for um, uh, companies that are that are that are invested in AI, um, who are often working in developing countries, they're paid extremely poorly, and what they do is that they come in and they actually correct and teach algorithms um, uh, what you know what uh, uh, what reality actually um, actually looks like. Um, and so there, there, there are millions and millions of, of these people who are, who are actually required to um, make AI seem human. Um, and so AI actually isn't replacing, um, uh, in some ways, isn't replacing labor so much as reconfiguring um, uh, labor relations in ways that um, are being used to generate new forms of uh, of of exploitation on behalf of capital, uh, since you know AI is really being um, being pioneered by um, uh, by these large tech companies, and so I I think that there's a um, there's a kind of I think a, a a myth about AI as a replacement for human labor when in fact what it actually has done is is reconfigured the way in which uh uh in which labor power is being distributed and it's created this new um exploited class of of people uh largely in um the developing world who have to correct constantly uh the workings of things like ChatGPT and other um and other AI products to make them seem human because um uh 
uh, you know, on their own, um, these algorithmic um, uh, driven uh, uh, programs actually can't really replicate what what how humans think, which is that we actually don't exactly think algorithmically. We think creatively. Uh, and there's there's it, it's very actually it's very hard to uh, to get um, uh, uh, something like ChatGPT to, to think creatively. And so there's this whole hidden history of the the human work, um, uh, often deeply devalued work that it takes to make AI work. And um, I think that those of us in academia have to keep insisting on uh, uh, what and on sort of talking about what the actual political economy of artificial intelligence. Um, uh, is and I, I encourage people uh, if they have a chance to read um, uh, this article that was that I mentioned that was published in New York Magazine uh, called "Inside the AI Factory: The Humans That Make Tech Seem Human," which is about um, uh, uh, is about these workers who are really doing um, the work of powering uh, uh, this so-called you know artificial <laughs> um, or uh, 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 intelligence revolution. Yeah, that's great. I appreciate that so much from both of you, the way that you you really frame that through the labor questions that are raised, because I don't think that that is enough of the conversation, especially in higher education, that we're having about it. It's too often this sort of moral panicky piece around that, that goes back to these persistent feelings that, that honestly, like, that pit too often um, faculty against students, right? These, like, constant... Yeah sense that all the students aren't working hard enough they're just always trying to cheat and i I just i don't i I don't i see no value in that right like we should have some solidarity with our students um we're part of the same project we're there for their education and the last thing we need to be doing is more policing um so yeah i i think that's great now We've been talking for a long time, and we can talk all day, obviously. Um, but there are a couple more things I want to get to. I want to make sure we get to. Uh, and we're going to come around because I think that, that, that what Joe was saying about um, this collapse between knowledge workers and manual labor is really the point we should end on. Um, but before we do that, Ashish, something that I, I noticed that you have really been um, hammering away at for, for quite some time now is the fact that we, we have, as a sort of exemplary discipline in crisis, we have history. Right. And we have this idea that history is a discipline that's somehow not facing this moment. Um, Yes. Can you explain what the field has become preoccupied with as a so-called crisis and also how that maybe causes it to miss what you see as the more urgent threats? Yeah. I mean, so as with a lot of other um, uh, as with a lot of other uh, humanities fields, uh, history, uh, as it's taught in um, universities, has been facing uh, a um, a decline in the number of undergraduates who are majoring in the subject. It's also facing a crisis in that its uh, its academic employment possibilities, through the number of tenure track jobs in uh, in history, is at a uh, is is kind of at a, at a, at an all time low. Um, there, there are almost none. Um, and at the same time, there's a kind of another crisis going on, which is that, uh, for history and for the humanities in general, there's been a kind of a massive collapse in the availability of, um, research funding, uh, that people, 
uh, uh, that people need, of course, to be able to um, uh, to uh, 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 do the actual work that we um, uh, that we need to do. Uh, but as I see it, the the discipline has the people who are kind of at the helm of the discipline, you know, people who, uh, historians who, academic historians who have major public platforms and, and, op and operate major institutional and, and have major institutional power, um, have really just kind of ignored um, these crises. So as an example of this, um, the, the discipline of history uh, basically kind of has spent uh, now Oh gosh, um, years it feels like, but um, uh, really, I think actually only about two years uh, debating uh, whether history is too uh, uh, so-called presentist. So the, the the origins of this debate uh, come from uh, the uh, the the then president of the American Historical Association. Uh, 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 who uh, at the time was a historian named James Sweet in 2022. Uh, he published an essay uh, uh, in which he said that um, historians have become um, too presentist uh, and, have, um, uh, and have read the past, as he put it, um, uh, through the prison of kind of contemporary social justice issues, race, gender, sexuality, uh, uh, capitalism, and that um, is leading to a uh, kind of dilution of both the quality of uh, academic work and um, is is not kind of doing history with integrity. And basically, after this column dropped in September 2022, uh, the the profession has been debating this question of: Are we too presentist? Are we not too presentist? And what it all ignores is the fact that in this period, uh, you know, the number of tenure track jobs in um, uh, uh, available uh, for historians in the university has uh, continued to collapse. Uh, the availability of um, uh, funding for graduate students in history, as well as other parts of the humanities to do research has collapsed because um, uh, much, many of the foundations that uh, used to fund this work have decided to focus on um, on on other things, uh, and so many of the kind of the research fellowships and and opportunities to um, uh, uh, get funding to go and do research have have disappeared, and that's a crisis. That the discipline, both the jobs crisis and the funding crisis, seem to just not want to talk about. Um, they want to talk about uh, uh, these other things of history and presentism, which I'm not sure really gets to the day-to-day -day lived reality if you were a contingent faculty member trying to teach history in a university. Um, and so I think that there is just been, there's a massive disconnect between what kind of the, the, the profession's aristocrats, uh, uh, you know, tenured faculty members, especially in uh, very prestigious R1, very wealthy R1 institutions that, 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 I mean, in many ways, whose, whose labor is really, uh, uh, and, and position is enabled by the work of, um, you know, uh, poorly paid graduate teaching assistants and poorly paid adjuncts. 
um, what they think the problem with the profession is, you know, whether it's presentism or, or something else, and what you know the 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 working class of the discipline, uh, the people who teach and research and often do so on with very little uh, uh, research funding and and on contracts that you know, that, that don't give them the job security think is actually the real crisis here. Joe, as another member of a humanities discipline, do you have anything you want to add on that? Yeah, I, you know, and I followed as a non-historian, I followed the, the James Sweat story sort of from uh, a distance. And, uh, and I think that one thing that, that you mentioned, Ashish, it was sort of his, you know, not just the presentism, but the, his association between presentism and uh, the politics of race, ethnicity, gender, yes. and sexuality studies, and and to me, I think that 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 connects to um, the broader um, situation that the humanities finds itself in, and and I think it returns us to a question that we've we've touched on a couple of times already, which is uh, what is a crisis and a crisis according to whom, um, and and I do think that. Those those fields, those subfields within history and in, and in other disciplines as well, um, they do something that that I I really that I think is core to the what to the the project of the humanities and and it's something I appreciate about this podcast is that it's it's an investment in critique and I think that what is is difficult about a discipline that that is built around and values critique is that critique is never going to win the uh the profit-minded uh, metrics of the university as uh you know as as constituted according to uh the recommendations of an rpk group yes. um because i just not it's not an affirmative form of knowledge and i think that those groups are really responsive to fields that are making big promises about curing diseases and uh, the potential use value of their uh, their research findings, uh, the kinds of things that you can see Malcolm Gladwell picking up in, picking up on and putting into one of his books or podcasts. And that's just not what we do in, in the humanities. Yeah. And I think it's always going to be kind of a losing battle for us when we try to make the appeal that, uh, you know, oh, well, actually, there's this huge market value for the thing that we do. Uh, because that's just not that sort of just kind of a way of selling out what actually the humanities does. Yes. Um, and, um, you know, it's it's a way for us to sort of constantly kind of return to various ways in which we can subordinate ourselves to STEM disciplines to sort of stay alive. Right. Well, we'll teach your students how to write or we're not that expensive. And so just keep us around because we don't need any resources. Um, right. And uh, I think those are sort of those are those are all ways to kind of. I think we, in some ways, we need to lean into the to what we do, um, and and stop trying to to win a battle that we just aren't going to win. Uh, you know, every every day I go up to my yeah. office, and we have one of these. I, as many English departments do, have this sign for our students. You know, like what can you do with an English major, right? And it's, yes. it's you know, like uh, what can't you do with an English major? <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, uh, and that's like that's the you know, it, but it's and I, I kind of laugh. I laugh, and I and I understand because of course our students want want jobs, and we have to be you know, supportive of, of that and recognize the realities of their situations. But, but I also think that we're often, you know, kind of, uh, hurting ourselves by trying to sort of squeeze, uh, humanities modes of critique into a box that we just don't fit into. And that yes. is always going to be a losing battle for us. And actually on that point, I'm reminded of, I mean, I, I often bring this up at the beginning of semesters. I, uh, with students, I, I say, you know, there's, 
there's this line that that Friedrich, the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, has in the at the beginning of his of his book on the genealogy of morals, where he says that our you know what what we should be doing is asking about the value of our values, and I think that especially in the humanities, you know what what we try to do in in both our scholarship and in our teaching is to get students to see uh, that you know that that what value is is contingent and um you know i think that that spirit of critique that you have just been talking about um is exactly what uh what our strength is and we we we, we if we lose that we sort of lose who we are um uh in um you know as as a set of disciplines as a as a spirit of inquiry yeah no i, I just yeah, want to say reminds, oh, go no please go ahead joe Oh, I was just going to just one last thing. You know, I, I it, I'm reminded, you know, in this conversation about um, a previous episode, Nathan, that you uh, that uh, I think it was a two parter with uh, a friend of mine, Chin Chin, at the University of Connecticut. Uh, UConn just keeps coming up, and he spoke about uh, sports management and the discipline of sports management. And I thought it was really funny listening to that episode because Nathan, you and your co-hosts were sort of all very apologetic at the beginning of the episode, kind of like, some of my best friends are sports management scholars. Um, and, uh, and I do think it's a perfect, it's a perfect, you know, sort of sports adjacent representation of what we're talking about, which is that, you know, we all have to do what we have to do to, to get by, but there's a, there's a reason why the money tends to move away from various forms of critical sports studies and into something more like sports management, because sports management is invested in a kind of an affirmative project of, corporate sports. Uh, and, and although someone like Chin Chin doing is doing wonderful critical work within that space, it is really not what it's, it's built for. Um, and, uh, and I think that, I, I think that it is, it, it, it raises a lot of questions for us about what kinds of institutional spaces are going to facilitate uh, humanistic critique going forward. No, absolutely. I, I, what I was going to say before is like just amen to both of you on all of these points because I think I think you're really hitting all the notes. Um, and and the last note that I think we need to hit that we should end on is and again I, I say this all the time like <laughs> I I'm not a person I actually like, I love the point you were making Joe about about critique because it's like I, I agree critique is important and you don't even always have to have an affirmative answer at the end of the critique like sometimes the critique is enough and and even within our kind of humanistic disciplines there's still some the tendency, okay, so what's the solution, right? Where do we go from here? Let's end on an optimistic note. Um, and I, I, I genuinely, I don't feel like that is necessary, um, but I think we should speak to the thing that you were talking about before, which is this this divide that exists between knowledge workers, right, and so-called manual workers, like the divides. We have yeah. all kinds of divides on our campuses. And I do think that if we want to be serious about looking to a better um, non-in-crisis future for higher education, we should be thinking about suturing some of these divides and actually yeah. understanding that, you know, campus athletic work, the work of graduate students, the work of professors, the work of undergraduate students, like all of this work is connected. We are all yeah. part of the same project, right? And we need some solidarity. So I, I would just love to hear you both, maybe starting with you, Joe, meditate a little bit on possibilities for solidarity on our campuses and if they can indeed be some kind of bulwark against this sort of the hegemony of neoliberalism. 
Yeah, I think it's a really important point. And I think if there's, you know, anything to, to take away from our conversation, it's that all of our colleagues at universities need to be paying attention to athletics. And I think it's it's remarkable. I think this is maybe a particularly, uh, you know, uh, pronounced in English, but uh, very few of my colleagues, I think, even though Michigan State is a, is a school, you know, I think publicly very identified with its its sports that you know, we just sort of ignore the athletics, except for when there's, you know, yet another scandal coming out of the athletic department. And um, I'm always reminded of something that John Phelan, the historian of higher education, um, wrote uh, a number of years ago, which is that well, the, the A&M that, uh, that used to stand for agriculture and mechanical or agricultural and mining really stands for athletics and medicine now mm. um, as a way to sort of emphasize that Athletics is really at, uh, you know, at, the, at, at exists at the center of the educational enterprise for, for better or worse. So we need to sort of address it as that. And, um, and I, I, I've, I've been working on a couple of projects related to the, the activist and educator Jack Scott, um, who's probably best known for a book called The Athletic Revolution. And uh, Scott often made the argument for what he called athletics for athletes, for um, an athletics that's governed by uh, and for athletes and it's mm-hmm. built more, uh, for mass participation. Um, and he always made the, made the point, And I think it's a really important one, which is that you can't have, um, an education for students if you don't have an athletics for athletes and vice versa, that these are, these are interrelated projects and that we need to understand that the way that we govern sports is closely on campus is closely related to the way that we, we govern the rest of the campus, including the, uh, the academic side. And, um, and I think the more that we can kind of break down that, that divide and not kind of think of athletics as, um, as isolated from, uh, the rest of the university and even worse, uh, which I think is even a a stronger tendency to think of it as antagonistic to, uh, to the academic side. I think, I think it is built often to be antagonistic, but it doesn't have to be that, that way. And I think the more that we can, uh, acknowledge the way that, um, Workers of all kinds on campus, including uh, staff workers, are uh, you know part of uh, a, a community that that needs to organize together. And you know, I'm, we're actually at Michigan State. It's a thing that, that's on my mind right now because we're in the process of of unionizing um, the tenure track faculty. And I have to say, I'm a little um, embarrassed by like I want to be very proud about the whole thing, but our union because we already have a union for. Uh, for non-tenure track faculty, our, t- our, 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 um, union is called like the, you know, Michigan state university tenure track faculty union. And I'm a little embarrassed because I feel like it's kind of like announcing our like superiority to another group of faculty or something like, well, we're the tenure track faculty union, you know? Um, and I do think there is an issue with, you know, trying to, uh, think about ways to organize across the divides that I think that the university administration really profits from between staff and tenure track faculty and non tenure track faculty and students and athletes. And I think the more that we can do to uh, to try to recognize um, our shared interests, um, and I'm thinking especially of graduate student organizers in California who've been, you know, uh, supporting. Um, uh, staff, uh, you know, uh, janitorial and ground staff who've been on strike. Um, and I think those kinds of things are, are incredibly important. And I think it, it falls, uh, on tenure line faculty as much as anyone to, uh, to recognize the way in which their, uh, their labor is aligned with, uh, with, uh, with other, other labor organizing on campus. Yeah. And I, I, what I, one of the things I wanted to get to, 
to add is that, I mean, one of one of the big stories, I think, maybe the biggest or most exciting story, at least for me in um, in higher ed right now is the wave of undergraduate worker uh, unionization on campuses. Um, uh, this is not actually a um, uh, an, an old story. There, there have been um, actually uh, at UMass um, uh, RAs or, or resident assistants. The 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 students who kind of uh, work in um, the dorms have have been unionized uh, for quite some time. Um, but there has been a a wave in um, the last couple of years of various undergraduate workers uh, on campuses across um, the U.S. Uh, forming unions. Um, and uh, in fact, uh, just yesterday, um, uh, down the street from me at Smith College, um, uh, United Smith Student Workers um, uh, won their union election. Um, these are these are students who work in the dining halls on campus, uh, and they um, they have won their union um, uh, and, and they've organized, you know, to increase pay and, and uh, improve their own working conditions. And I think it's really, really important. Um, uh, it's a really important development, these developments of students, undergraduate students, sort of seeing themselves as workers, as part of the labor force of, um, of uh, colleges and universities and, and workers who... Um, uh, deserve fair treatment and 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 who understand that um uh you know a, a union is the best way to resist uh uh kind of the the neoliberal uh oppression of um the institution is one of the most hopeful uh uh and to my mind biggest stories um in in higher education that's happening um right now um you know Undergraduate worker unionization is uh, is a really, I think, powerful example of how um, you know students, uh, especially um, uh, that, and and how kind of the people who who make the university work are are, are taking back uh, power and and insisting on a, a very different, much more democratic, uh, much fairer vision of what the university can be than what we're getting from you know, the Gordon Gies of the world and, and the college presidents and uh, their, uh, you know, their, the, the consulting firms who uh, sort of help them out. Well, I gotta say, you both have me feeling optimistic. I, I'm surprised <laughs> to say that, but you know what? The stories of labor organizing do make me feel good. And, and congratulations, Joe, honestly, on your your own union's organizing campaign, because I know that that is the, the, the most uplifting experiences I've ever had as a worker are moments of labor activism and organizing, whether it's being on strike, collective bargaining. And I've had many moments, whether it was York University in Canada on strike or bargaining with Duke faculty union, you know, those are the moments that really bring you together with your colleagues and transcend the tortuous exchange relationships that shape our lives, right? Those are moments of species being where you really connect and can I can imagine a better future and like make it happen for yourself. So uh, I'm excited for Absolutely. you. Absolutely. I appreciate that, Nathan. Yeah, I, I this is my first uh, my first year at Michigan State. So I feel like I arrived at uh, just the right time. Yeah, you, you, you sure did. Well, Ashish Kapoor Sadiq and Joe Darda, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Nathan. Thank you, Nathan. Thank you, Ashish. <laughs> <laughs>